Mr. Algayer. Mr. Marate. What have you been eating most recently? Thanks for asking. Nice to see you. Um, yeah, man. I'm, I'm fresh off a custom-made Crunchwrap Supreme from Taco Bell because I was on my way home. I went to three mini-golf courses today, and I didn't play a single round of mini-golf. And naturally, I was tuckered out from that. And I was on my way home, and... Uh, saw Taco Bell and I had my camera with me and I've been going around to different fast food restaurants and like taking video of the menus for like this new video I'm working on and so I was like great I can get a meal and some footage out of this and I had six dollars cash on me and I knew a Crunchwrap Supreme was five something dollars and the rest is history what did what did you have I had some cheeky nugs what are those? Chicken nuggets. Oh, I think it's chicky nugs, my friend. No, 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 like little little bit of cheeky nugs. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's a it's a British dish. Where did it come from? You you were just celebrating your English heritage. The the yeah the traditionally British co of cost. Um, oh, Costco again? Are you? Is this a paid sponsorship? Uh, this. Is Trent, didn't you have something to say you wanted to say about the Muppets? Yeah, there is some Muppet related news. Uh just for context, you sent this to me. Parth, you 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 give a build up and then I'll and then I'll I I was re- I received a thing on Instagram by my very good friend Sophia. Some might say a direct message. Cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also known as a DM. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then I forwarded that to you. Well, Sophia said, what does Trent think about this? Because it's Muppet related, so naturally. But Yeah, yeah, you're the first thing on her mind, just even generally. It's crazy how often that your friend is thinking about me. Yeah, it's it's really weird. Um, I, don't think we, I don't think we need to look into it any further. So it's, from, it's a Reddit screenshot. Um, so I'm just going to read it aloud, and then we can discuss a little bit. Um, so the movie it concerns is actually a Muppet movie I haven't seen. Uh, it's called It's a Very Muppet Christmas Movie, which it I believe it's some sort of a riff on... Um, uh, what's the old uh, Christmas movie and the guy's suicide that everyone... It's a Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life. It, it's a joke on It's a Wonderful Life. So... Um, I'll read the post now. Oh, but if, for those who don't know, in It's a Wonderful Life, they show the guy. What life would have been if the main character had not existed? So that's what Kermit is going through in this 2002 film. Okay. So the opening is Kermit caused 9-11. Um, not really much of a fan theory though, since it's unintentionally canon. Um, Realize this should be explained. In the 2002 TV film, it's a very Muppet, Muppet Christmas movie. Wait, fuck. Uh, In the 2002 TV film, it's a very Muppet Christmas movie. There's a part where an angel shows Kermit an alternate reality where he was never born. For whatever reason, the editors didn't really think about it and continued to use footage with the Twin Towers still standing for this scene. However, they aren't there in the original universe. Therefore, something that Kermit did in his life did, in fact, cause 9-11 in Muppet lore. I, yeah, I mean, that's funny. I haven't seen... 
that movie, so we can't confirm it, and clearly it's just an editing mistake. But what do you think? Um, I, I like the idea that, you know, Kermit is in some way responsible for um, 9-11 and the but deaths of it could thousands be... of people. It could just be the the butterfly effect. It's not like we're accusing Kermit the Frog of being involved in Al Qaeda. No, I think no, that... I'm I'm accusing him of that. Um... <laughs> I think any further comment on uh, such a national tragedy would get us in some uh, some hot water. So should, where should does we just cue the intro? Our show, Craft Services, the podcast. Cue the intro. Nice. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about movies. Each week we talk about a film, and hopefully you have a crew member that worked on that film to talk with us about their experience working on the movie. This week we're talking about Chloe Zhao's Nomadland, released on Hulu recently. And with us we have its first assistant director, Mary Kerrigan. She also worked as the unit production manager and now she's working on jesse eisenberg's new movie which we discuss we also get into nomadland and her time at nyu there are a lot of good things that are discussed yep and uh fun fact uh my film producing uh, professor was a producer on this movie so and that she was gracious enough to get us in contact with mary and she was awesome she was really nice to us when we were real awkward and just just generally unpleasant to be with. That's us, right? Yeah, I would. This interview, I would say, had great flow. But off the uh, off the record, after we had our most awkward silence to date. It was. It was. I don't know what happened, and I feel so sorry for her that she had to sit through that while both of our brains malfunctioned. And I don't know what happened. It was it was it it was I think our best interview in terms of flow. Yeah, and then for it all to come crashing down. Yeah. Maybe if um we rethought the co-hosts, like maybe if there was like a new person. So, um we hope you enjoy this interview and come back for more. Um uh, stay tuned. So uh, I guess yeah, now Enjoy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Mary Kerrigan. She's the first assistant director and unit production manager for today's film, Nomadland. Um, a first for craft services, somebody that held two jobs for one film. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The first ADs have all the inside gossip of the shoots, so really good person to reach out to. So uh, just to get started, uh, how'd you get introduced to the film world? Well, I, I grew up in Nebraska and honestly didn't even know you could have a career in film growing up. 
And then uh, sort of one day I was like researching colleges and discovered a film degree and went to NYU and it was all kind of history from there. But growing up, I didn't even really know that you could be a first AD or, you know, I didn't know there were other roles in film. So were you into movies as a kid and that's what inspired you to apply to move to New York from Nebraska and pursue, you know, an art degree? Yeah, I wasn't like a big movie buff, but I was in really like interested in entertainment and we had a journalism program at my high school. So that got me a little bit into it. And I, um, I, I didn't know that you could be a filmmaker, but I was yeah interested in entertainment and we had the journalism program at my high school and I was a part of a dance company. So I was sort of in the world of like entertainment and that sort of thing. And um, I went to a summer high school program at NYU um, for film for young filmmakers and like had my whole world just opened up. Um, I learned that, you know, the person that holds the camera is different from the director. And like, I, I had never really paid attention to the credits before that. So what was your four year undergrad at NYU like? Because Tish is like considered like the number one film school in like the country. So it's very it esteemed. Was- Yes, it was it was a really cool experience. I I do I I didn't go to class a lot. I was working a lot. I did so many student films and little short films and music videos and projects. I was like skipping class to go work all the time, which is a little bit of a regret of mine, but I also like met a ton of people and tried every position on set you could imagine. Um didn't sleep much, uh but I, I think the main Uh, takeaway was that I met a lot of really cool people who, you know, want to make movies and want to make TV shows and all that jazz. And then I also just got to practice and learn how not to make films, (laughs) I think is the main thing. I made a lot of like, you know, just mistakes making projects in school. And I had that time period to just practice. That's great. Uh, So what were some of your like earliest jobs that you had in the industry? I really wanted to be a boom op, like in the very beginning. I I loved boom opping. And that was sort of like on the student projects. When I was a freshman, I started PAing. And then like the other role that they always brought freshmen on to do was boom opping for some reason. So I did a lot of boom opping. Um, and I liked that. I like got a boom pole for my birthday and was going to like go all out in the sound world. But then I, I started... Um, I did some gripping, I did some electric, I did art department stuff, and it all started to become clear that I kind of just liked how it all came together. And um, I think with Aideen, you kind of get to have your finger in your ear on every department. Like you can kind of, you know, have a little bit of involvement in every aspect of the process. So that's sort of how I got started Aideen, just because I had done a little bit of everything. So what was like your first official job on set post-graduation? And then how did that lead you to future jobs? During school, I was doing a lot of PAing on random stuff. After graduation, I I was PAing for Homeland and for um, friends from college and for there was another TV show, just like New York city tv shows and then i became the property department pa on season two of billions super random but 
I got to learn about how a production office works. So that was key. And then um, I started working on this movie called Wendy, which let me um, go to the Caribbean for five months. And I worked on um, on Wendy and that was my first real job. Um, and I learned so much in such a short amount of time and like, oh, most of my knowledge about filmmaking to those people and those producers. So uh, transitioning into our main topic, yeah, yes. Nomadland, how'd you get involved with it? Um, Nomadland came my way because um, Dan Jamby, one of the producers, was also a producer on Wendy. Um, so he threw my name into the pot and Taylor Shung, the line producer of Nomadland, um, was someone I had worked with at NYU. And um, she kind of backed me as well. And for some reason, they thought I was right for the job. <laughs> the, the, the style of production, this sort of run and gun, everyone's wearing multiple hats, um, is my jam. That's what I love to do. I, you know, I like to become a family and travel around and um, really get to know the whole crew and really become sort of a well-oiled machine of mixing and mingling of roles. So just going in, they wanted that sort of shoot and they knew that that was, you know, what I do best. So I think that's the main reason it came my way. But um, yeah. So um, you're, as we mentioned before, you're accredited both as first assistant director and unit production manager. Um, and to my knowledge, that's pretty unconventional. Um, so how did that happen? I wouldn't recommend it. It's maybe the two worst, most difficult jobs put together. Um, it was unique on this. I mean, when we were shooting, um, I was the first AD, like on our shoot days. Um, when we were in prep and in between our shoots and on the weekends, I was the UPM. Um, like I said, everyone was sharing hats. Like Chloe did a lot of the scheduling. She knows what she wants each day. She knows how much we're able to shoot each day. She knew... Um, how we should schedule. So I wasn't doing a ton of um, full scheduling. I would help with, oh, this should take more time or, oh, it'd be better if we organized it this way. I, I was, you know, helping with that, but she really ran the schedule. So as far as first AD, I was really there to help communicate between departments and, um, you know, help get things in place for each day. Um, but I would sort of become the UPM in that I would also like develop the transpo plan for the day and um, like talk to, I did some like minor casting. I did all the equipment rentals. Um, I did a lot of the vehicle rentals. I sort of like found the trailer that the Vanguard is transported on. I drove Vanguard mostly and transpo captain, I guess, uh, like just, um, sort of any task that needed to be done. But on top of that, our line producer, Taylor, and um, co-producer, uh, Emily, she also took on a lot of the roles that the UPM would do. So, you know, I have those two credits, but um, I wasn't doing the full extent of either of those jobs. I was kind of doing uh, what I could of both, and I would sort of juggle between the two um, as needed. So I read online that the production was filmed over the course of four months and that the ca that the cast and crew were living primarily out of vans. Is Was this the case? We weren't living out of vans necessarily. Chloe has a van that she can live out of and she would oftentimes sleep in it or work out of it. 
Um, I think Fran maybe spent the night in Vanguard a few times, um, but we lived in hotels and motels and random places like that along the way. It, we did shoot over the course of, we had like a, an initial shoot in South Dakota and Nebraska that was like about a month of shooting. And then we took about a month off to prep. I became the UPM again. And then we came back and we shot about a month in change in Nevada and Arizona and then and California. And then we came back after a holiday break and shot about another month in change um, in Arizona and California. So just out of curiosity, how big was the crew on this film? We were always under 20 um over 10 our first round of shooting i think we were a little less and then we learned that we maybe needed a few more <laughs> roles uh and and hired a few extra people for the longer shoot over um, from november december january um but yeah i think with all it, with all of the producers we were and including fran we were like 22 at our most um but it it was sort of it could be in the 15 range sometimes as well so you mentioned Chloe Zhao, um, and obviously she's the writer-director of the movie, um, and we were wondering what she and Frances McDormand were like uh, to work with and what that process was sort of like. I will say that Frances McDormand is like my favorite person in the whole world. She was just amazing to work with. Like I saw her pick up trash and push carts, and she would drive production vehicles and like help you know, she would be in every meeting. Like, she's just awesome. She's like a true producer of the movie. She's not just like an actor who's also producing. Um, she really made things happen. And she's just like a lovely person. She's kind of like was the mother of our crew and like really pepped us up and kept us going, kept the bar high. Um, so couldn't speak more highly of her. Chloe as well. Like she is a leader and she I, you know, she's kind of a genius. Like there's things that we would be on our way to shoot something, the plan for the day. And she'd call and be like, oh, there's something else we need to do or like change it. And I'd be like, oh my God, uh, change things. And then what we would end up shooting would be so much better than anything we could have planned. You know, like she, she has an eye for what she wants. And even though like we went in with this like scriptment, it wasn't, you know, a fully fleshed out with dialogue script she she knew the whole time exactly what we needed to get and um it was pr just pretty impressive how she was able to sort of transcend the typical duties of a writer director and really help make some of the logistical plans and and like stick to them and uh it was just a really unique experience that leads us into our next question we were going to ask about the status of the script going in and you you're saying it was pretty bare bones and there was a lot of room for improvisation yeah, I, I, and I don't even know if improvisation is the right word. Basically, what I received at, in prep was like what I keep calling is a scriptment. And it's basically it had scenes and some scenes had fully fleshed out dialogue. Other scenes were just like, you know, a bare landscape. Fran walks through, you know, or like very, um, you know, just sort of ideas or, or bookmarks for a scene that could grow depending on who we casted or who we met. Because that's another thing that um, Hannah Peterson and Nathan Harrison were sort of on local casting team. And they would, while we're shooting, go out and meet people and go out and meet people to meet other people and to interview people. And 
we would be shooting a scene and then they would find a really interesting nomad and we would like reshoot that scene with a different person the next day because it might be better. Uh, yeah, that leads us into one of our other questions we had, which is um, this movie deals with a lot of non-actors. And um, like I-, I watched the movie last night and it was amazing, um, but it it's got a real like documentary feel to it and it just feels really natural. And we were wondering what the process of like getting those actors and um, did you have to sort of teach them how the film worked or were you sort of working around them? I think the main um, like pro of how we were shooting is that we didn't have this huge like impact on the environments and we didn't have this huge like film crew coming in to like wreck your world and like lay down matting and equipment. Like we would show up in a couple vans and like, kind of hang out with people and the camera would come out and Chloe would talk to them and suddenly we'd be shooting the scene. Um, So it was very casual and like very comfortable for people that hadn't been around that. And we didn't want to, you know, come into a location and and have an impact on it. We wanted to film a location as it was. Um, Like we were as a crew, when we were shooting at the campsites, like we were encouraged to wear clothing that like we could blend in with because that, you know, if if Josh decides to pan the camera over here, I better be able to be in the shot because I had no idea he was going to do that. So as far as working with non-actors, we were really trying to like blend in and, and make it, you know, feel as natural as it, as, as it can. You know, there was definitely times when Chloe would like direct them and it felt like we were doing a real scene. But a lot of times it would just be like, okay, like Fran and this person are talking and now we're rolling and now they're talking in a way that could fit in the movie. <laughs> um, so that was kind of interesting. Um, I like working with non-actors because especially, you know, if they're playing themselves, it's like just interesting to see people's, you know, versions of themselves for camera. Um, and it's just, it's fun. People, you know, get excited by the idea of making a movie when they're not used to it. So, you know, if you work in New York and LA, people are like, oh, you got to pay me to shoot in my driveway, you know, whereas like you're in the middle of Nevada, people are like, can I like walk through the background? You know, it's like people are still a little mystified by it. And I, I like that because I'm kind of mystified by it. I think filmmaking can be very fun and exciting. So were all the real nomads just like picked up along the way or was there any level of like pre-production casting or not necessarily casting, but finding real life people with the intention of putting them in later? Most of the people with speaking parts were in the book that Jessica wrote. So they were pre-casted like Linda May and Swanky and um, Bob Wells, like all those roles. We had plans to meet them at certain places Um, And then on top of that, the main um, nomads we meet at RTR, uh, Molly Asher, one of the producers, she had a list from Jessica of people she could reach out to. And she worked for months gathering, I think we had about 70 people in the end. That number may be a little wrong. Felt like 70 people um, that literally just met us in the desert. And we parked all their vans around. And over the course of like two weeks, we just got to know people. And there's probably a whole second film of interviews that we did that aren't in the movie. Um, Cause we had, we did van tours and bus tours and, you know, truck tours with tons of people. And 
um, all of those people like had a speaking role at a certain point and, and, you know, were like paid as such and became a part of the movie. And then obviously it gets pared down because you can't include everyone. But um, the experience of the like fake RTR that we did, um, all of those people are true nomads that are like, you know, we connected with them through other nomads and they, they really just met us in the desert in their homes. Um, and, and they were casted in advance, but we met them there on the spot. Yeah. That was, that was going to be another one of our questions of like, like it's shot in like a really documentary style. So was there much like left on the cutting room floor, but it, it seems oh, like I'm there sure. was, yeah. We, we probably shot like three movies worth it. There's cause there's other scenes like when we were shooting at this like gas station, like, Oh, there's another person here. That's really cool. Like let's shoot a scene with him it's like never gonna see this but it's you know worth that to explore maybe this guy has a crazy story um and i think chloe's really good at that like picking the right people um that are willing to open up about their lives or tell their story um hannah um who did a lot of the casting she went in advance to arizona and like met a ton of people that we sort of cast and brought back but a lot of them were like i might be in arizona at that time if i'm here we'll run into each other again and i'll be in your movie so we were kind of like okay i guess we'll <laughs> we'll see if you're there um like all the 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 kids that she meets at the rock um at the rock store um they were people that we had met and we were like hoping would be there and it was sort of this juggling act of like, are they here right now? Oh, they said they might be on their way. Okay, we'll be here in two weeks too. Hopefully we can shoot this scene with you. And they brought an extra person and the guy we wanted to see wasn't there, but this like new person was great. So it was very, you know, who's who's around, who has a good story, um, yeah. So this film is like shot primarily outside and we are wondering like what it was like to be using almost exclusively natural light or if there you had artificial lights too if you're prepared for it and you have enough shooting days and you have the budget to allow yourself enough shooting days it is the best way to make a movie in my opinion i love it um i mean yeah you sometimes get a bad day or you get clouds or you get rain or wind obviously that's what weather is but and you can adapt to that or you know if you have the flexibility you can cancel your day and come back the next day um it's about sort of picking the right you know months to be shooting i think is a big one but i think it shooting that way like really allows you to a like see anywhere you want like a lot of times if you're lighting for a specific space you can't like oh i want to go shoot a scene over there or you know, oh, it looks a little better pointing this direction. Like you can't be 360. I mean, you can if you have a ton of money and you've got like crazy rigging and blah, blah, blah. But it's a great, I mean, the great gaffer in the sky, you know, it's the the sun is beautiful. And um, I think it's a really nice way to shoot. I think Chloe has, you know, this like idea of what time of day things need to be. And like, I think you have to kind of throw continuity out the window a little bit. Um, and your your script has to, you know, work with that. You can't shoot a, a, a thing that takes place over one day and, you know, expect to have every day look the same. But with Nomadland, like, we were able to be like, oh, well, it's cloudy today. This day is going to be three months later, you know. So we had that flexibility. And, and Chloe was able to know, like, oh, it needs to be morning light. So we have to shoot, you know. So you have to do it strategically. but. Um, 
I think it's a really nice way to shoot because it does give you that flexibility in the moment and um and it looks really nice too i think <laughs> so what was there um like how, how specific was the like shooting schedule because uh, it seems like it was sort of i don't want to say loosey-goosey because that makes it sound like you guys weren't like prepared but it was sort it sort of felt seems like it was really like off the cuff and like constantly changing it was yeah we would we would change the plans the next day like almost every night and with a crew of 15 all staying in the same hotel, it's you can do that and it's no problem. Um, we knew like, you know, going in, oh, we have to shoot these scenes in this state or we have like this actor conflict or like, oh, Swanky can only meet us for this period of time in this place. Like we did have like a real schedule. I had a movie magic file. Like it's it was real, but... Um, as far as on the on a daily basis, we would completely throw plans out the window and change them. And if you're you know prepared for that and your crew knows that that's the deal, it's amazing. It, um, it was so nice because you know you could make changes that I I think you know ended up being great changes. Like I you know you don't want to just like have no plan, but sometimes having a plan to lose the plan I think is a good good way to do it. And having that flexibility, we had certain days that like the RV show is happening today. So we like have to, you know, shoot this, but there were other times where it's like, Oh, it's too windy today to shoot this scene. We're going to do van interiors instead. Um, and we would make that decision at like noon. We also had hilariously nice hours. Like we would shoot from like noon to sunset and occasionally a little more, occasionally a little less. So, um, we were wondering what was the most difficult sequence to execute or orchestrate, or if there was anything particularly complicated or that fell apart. The most difficult sequence to execute is not in the movie. <laughs> oh, tell us about uh, it. It was at the beat har- Yeah, it was at the beat harvest in Nebraska. We brought like, I think like 50 or more extras and we had all of these trucks, like we had planned it so that all of the sugar beet farmers were going to show up at a certain time. So there would be like rows and rows of sugar beet uh, trailers. And then I had coordinated all these, like, it was like the sun was setting. I had coordinated all these like um, tractors with their lights on and pickup trucks with their lights on. And Nathan, um, who was locations, and I had this like amazing stuff all planned out. And we shot it. It was great, but it's not in the movie. So that's unfortunate. It's like huge wide shot. And we also were doing shots where the Fran is riding in the back of a pickup truck. And Josh with the camera was in the back of the pickup truck too. And they're driving all over this, this thing. And we had all these background there. We had a trash fire and a barrel and just the craziest stuff we had done was not in the movie. Um, there was a lot of that where we, we, we would have like these big coordinated sunset shots and a, a lot of them made them in, made it in the movie, but I love that sort of stuff. And it's fun when you're working with uh, like, these are like actual sugar beet farmers. So they were all excited to like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like when you drive by, I'm going to like go over here and toss the beets over my shoulder. Like, <laughs> It was it's fun. their it's their big chance to make it in Hollywood. I'm sure they're yeah. psyched. It's their 15 minutes. Ah, uh, they're they got cut. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. So one of the like it's a small sequence, but uh, you 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 guys managed to film inside of an Amazon warehouse. Um. What was that like? Because it's not exactly pro Amazon. 
the movie. Yeah, unfortunately, we had to be a little more pro Amazon than the script and Jessica's book should be, you know. And like while we were there, there was like a moment where like Fran or someone was gonna like take some Advil at the lunch table, and like one of the Amazon reps came over and they're like, "Delete that clip! Like you can't shoot that!" Like okay, uh, and we had to we had to like follow the rules because they were letting us shoot there. So we did have some oversight from them. They were definitely around and making sure. It's also strange because like the book makes you know, working at an Amazon and and we shot at like the nicest, newest facility they had. Like we could only shoot in their, this one facility that had opened like a few months ago. And like all the employees were super young and excited and like loved their jobs. And I was like, yeah, like you work at a really cool facility, but like five years ago or 10 years ago, or whatever, the facilities weren't this nice and the people weren't this yeah. excited. So the, the specter of Jeff Bezos was looming yeah. large. Yeah. But it is the 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 facility. It was our last three or four days of the shoot too, which was kind oh, of really? crazy. That's how we ended, because they had spent like the entire shoot trying to get permission to shoot in Amazon. Mm-hmm. What was um, there a contingency plan if that didn't go through? I don't think so. It was like we're doing this. It's like this is this is has to happen. Um, there is pretty funny thing like because Fran actually was packing Amazon boxes and she like put a note in a couple of them and like so some people somewhere in the country like got boxes that were like packed by her which is pretty fun so yeah i yeah, hear what you're saying about the the flattering depiction of amazon being a necessary evil for yeah for for paying them back for letting you film there but um moving on uh we watched your directorial uh you, you're credited with one movie uh geez louise and we watched no you didn't yeah i mean it was easy easy to find um and how did it come into existence i liked it um that was my senior thesis film at nyu um it came into existence with some blood sweat and tears of all my friends from college driving to omaha nebraska to help me make my movie um it was it's it was like honestly the best week of my life. I had so much fun making that movie, and I I want to direct again, but I don't have any good ideas, so I'm working on that. <laughs> so did you really uh, knock down that that house? Or no, how- and it's pretty obvious with the VFX, but it's well, all I, I could afford. <laughs> yeah, I understand. So what was what was the budget of that? Um, in the end, I got a grant in the very end, so it bumped it to like thirty five thousand dollars which is a lot of money to spend on a student film. And I actually like regret a lot of that. I did an Indiegogo campaign though, and made like $11,000. Um, I did this thing called a dance-a-thon to raise money. And I promised that you could donate any amount of money on this one day, and I would make you a custom dance video. And it sort of like blew up and I ended up having to like cancel my plans for the day. I ended up making 55 videos and met my goal by the end of that night. And like, I had to have friends like bring me food cause I was so busy making these dance videos. So uh, that the money came from the Indiegogo campaign. And I also like did less credits my senior year to like save money for the movie. It's unfortunate. I, I, I love that movie and it's like, you know, I'm so proud of it. And it's like, so it's, it's me and it's, I'm, my community helped me make it. And it's just a shame cause the, like festival circuit and like the whole you know making a short film thing is like kind of a 
it's practice. It, it doesn't really turn into anything. So I was sad at the end, but I'm still really proud of the movie. And it's so awesome. You guys watched it. <laughs> yeah. If you don't like make it into Sundance, it's kind of a thankless job. Yeah. I'm like, who makes it into Sundance? It's just, it's yeah. So, so do you think you'll find yourself writing or directing anytime in the future? I think in the distant future, yeah, I would love to. I um, I always say I really want to make like kids content, children's films, like happy endings, uh, Pixar live action. You know, I would love that so much. Um, I want a little more life experience under my belt before I can, you know, direct an actor to be emotional on screen. Um, I've tried to write some things, but I have this block of like, oh, I don't want to waste more money on a short film. Like I, I'd like to make a feature, um, but I also don't want to waste money on a feature. So I'm like, kind of waiting for that perfect script, perfect team, perfect budget. Right. Maybe it'll wait, come. Wait for the right time. Exactly. Um, that would be, it would be so fun to do again. And I'd love to do it again in Nebraska. Um, you know, like my mom and dad were PAs and, you know, everyone's in the movie and it was just, it was a really good experience. Um, so speaking of some of the experience under your belt, uh, you've worked as a producer, um, on a bunch of short films. Um, and we were wondering, what's that like? How is it being a producer? What do you, what do you do? Well, a lot of those short films are student films and being a producer on a student film is pretty much doing everything that no one wants to do. You know, it's a lot of like transpo, catering, sticking to the budget, trying to figure out where the money's coming from and like keeping track of the money so you don't overdraw your own bank account. Because let's be real, like when you're producing a student film, it's probably just out of your own bank account. Um, so it's a lot of, you know, like that sort of like, you know, just logistical stuff that no one wants to do it was fun getting to like work with friends and bring their dream you know 3d print their brains into a thing and um you end up getting to like hang out with people and a lot of those were like little away shoots and um i liked all that i like at this point i i'm still unsure how people get money for projects and then also unsure how people like sell their movies in the end so i i've kind of narrowed in on ADing and feel like I would need to learn a lot more to be a full-blown producer on a you know real movie not a short film or a student film um, but for the right person um, I'd be happy to produce anything for the right friend with the right passion project um, I do like like doing all the jobs no one else wants to do sort of everything that gets forgot about <laughs> So we were curious if there were any major distinctions working as an assistant director in television versus film. That's a good question. I've never been a first AD on a TV show, but I've, you know, PA'd, PA'd on a ton of, I, I did a, I did a digital short TV series um, in New York a few alls ago. You know, in, in like big TV world, ADs switch off. So like you have one AD department that does even numbered episodes and one AD department that does odd numbered episodes. And, you know, those last a lot longer and you're working with a lot more people and things are changing all the time, different directors. With a film, it's more of a like short burst, like a summer camp. Like you, you know, you, you do prep with people for a while, you really get to know them and then you spend six weeks or, you know, maybe longer, maybe shorter shooting and you like, just like really get to know everyone super well. And, you know, it's like by the end you, you know, you're like a family or whatever I use that term, but 
then it's over and you like may not see them until the next project. You may not see them again. Like I've done a lot of um, international shoots or shoots, you know, in random places. And there's people on my like Facebook friends or like Instagram that I, I might not see ever again. It's really sad. But with a TV show, it's usually like, oh yeah, we'll see you guys next season or, um, you know, that sort of thing. So I think those are the main differences is just sort of the timeline and the volume of, you know, people you're interacting with and content you're capturing. Mm-hmm. Um, so just sort of starting to wrap up a little bit. Um, uh, we don't know if you're actually allowed to say anything about this. So through the magic of editing, this can all just be gone. Um, but uh, your IMDb says that you're currently filming when you finish Saving the World, which is Jesse Eisenberg's, I believe, directorial debut. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, if you can say anything about it. I don't know if I'm it. not allowed to say anything. I, I'm going to say, I don't, I, I think it's fine. I, yeah. It's we Jesse don't have too Eisenberg. many listeners, so I don't think you're going to get in trouble. There, it's not really that secret. I mean, it's <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg's movie and I like love him. He is phenomenal director as a director and as a person. Um, he's been like so great to work with. And it stars Julianne Moore and Finn Wolfhard um, as a mother-son combo. Um, he also, it's sort of based off of not a book, but an audible special with the same name. We have, we're on week, we just wrapped week four of six. So we're kind of getting to the end. We like, at this point, kind of, I was actually going through the script this morning because we had to make a little change. And I was like, wow, we have kind of shot this whole movie. We're, you know, it could probably get turned into something. So that's always a good feeling. Uh, it's been great. We're shooting in Albuquerque, which I have never shot in before, but the the crews here are awesome. Um, everyone like knows each other and it works really well together. And um, it's been, you know, weird shooting in COVID, um, but we've done it successfully so far. Just gonna knock on some wood real quick. And yeah, it's been a really good time. I, I've had a ton, I had a ton of prep on this movie, which was super nice. They like brought us all in in late November of last year and we didn't start shooting until February. So I think they did that to, you know, make up for COVID issues. And it's been really nice. We've had a really nice shooting schedule, uh, about 10 hour days, which is what A24 is kind of recommending during COVID to keep people healthy. I kind of have my voice lost right now because we were, I was had to be shouting a little bit for actions yesterday, but I, uh, you know, I'm having a really good time on it. It's been a, been a fun time. We're almost done. So how were you brought on board for it? This one I was brought on. Um, Becky Glipchinski, the line producer, was also the line producer on Wendy, which, you know, is kind of how it all happens is you, you meet a couple people and you one hope to, to the next. Yeah, show up on time, smile, do your job well, and hopefully they hire you again. So as big fans of Jesse Eisenberg, we uh, we feel inclined to ask, like, what his directing style is like and, like, what he's like on set he he just seems like such an interesting man he's very similar to some of the characters he plays to be honest um like he's he's kind of anxious all the time and like very sweet and like he apologizes to trash cans when he walks by and bumps them you know which i do too honestly that that's the midwest in me but like he's very sweet um his directorial style, um, he and our DP Ben have um, like pretty specific plans for how we're shooting each scene. And um, they had a lot of time during prep to really plan out sort of the, the language of the film and um, how, you know, 
how pacing and all that's going to work. So going in, like we, we really had a good plan and sort of, it's just up to him and the actors um, making it happen. It's sort of a, I'd call it a dramedy, um, but it is very performance driven. So he definitely has that as a priority. And um, the actors are like, you know, very, we, we make a lot of our decisions based on what's best for the actors. And um, he keeps that as a priority and yeah, everyone loves it. It's been pretty fun. So if you're saying the story is based on a book and then I guess it's like no top secret of what it's about. So can you give us a log line of what the movie is? Ooh, I don't know about a log line. I'm pretty bad at log lines, but it's, it's um, in the, if you listen to the, it on audible in the, in the audible special, Jesse is um, reading for a new father. That's like having a hard time connecting to his kid. And then like chapter, the next part of the book is that kid all grown up he's like 18 and he's like this like hip cool musician who like has a crush on this girl but he's also like kind of a narcissist and he uh he's just this like goofy kid named ziggy the third part of the book is the mom character but before she meets jesse's character so she's like also a young young person so the movie is the middle portion of that story so we have Ziggy at he's like 17 he's in high school and then his mom played by Julianne Moore they're both these like kind of um sweet yeah kind of narcissistic people she runs a domestic violence shelter and she's like started it from the ground up she's this like amazing woman and it's sort of this like mother-son um relationship drama that has pretty funny moments I think um but yeah, it's it, it's not, there's no like big, crazy plot points. It's sort of, um, you're just like, yeah, un, un, unrolling this mother-son relationship that, uh, you know, is complex like any family relationship. And um, they're very similar people. And it's, yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. And Finn and Julianne are great together. And Finn and Jesse are actually really great t- together too. Finn's like kind of a mini Jesse. It's pretty cute. <laughs> Don't tell him I called him cute. <laughs> when is it set to release? Do you know? I have no idea. Uh, well, maybe. I don't know. I have no idea. That's okay. I, again, like, I know nothing about movies before they start or after they're shot. Like, <laughs> I'd like to learn more about that side of the industry, but um, I usually join once the money's there, and then I'm done once we stop shooting. It's <laughs> good. Um Trent, should uh, should I ask the final question? The final question. The yeah, final question. Exactly. <laughs> the grand finale. Uh, uh, so we like to ask our guests as the last question what the last great thing they watched was. Ooh, the last great thing I watched. I I watched Promising Young Woman. Oh, we just we just we just had an episode about it. I loved it. There's so many, a lot of my friends and people I love and respect don't like it. Really? Why? I what? loved it. My boyfriend and I talked for like four hours after it was done. We just like oh. sat and talked about it, which I never really do. It was so good. What's their case against it? Because Parth gave it a 9.5 out of 10. I think a lot of people I've heard it's like not nuanced and like it's a really difficult subject to be talking about and maybe it wasn't handled well, but I think it's the perfect mix of um, like levity in this awful subject and also like just throwing it in your face. Like this is real. This is, Oh my God. I I loved it. I I thought it was a genius concept. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't really 
buy any of the criticisms or like the big criticisms that have been yeah. thrown at it yeah. personally you, you're preaching to the choir also in our past episodes we talked about how sometimes it's like a, a motley crew of uh you know like sexist people who don't bad like, faith yeah criticism. Who, who don't like a movie like promising young woman it's been a lot of women that haven't liked it i'm like no like <laughs> <laughs> yeah so don't be, don't betray the motherland yeah, I, I really liked it. I thought it was hilarious. I, like, love Bo Burnham, and then the end is so dark. And I don't like, like, dark, you know, I don't want to give anything away to anyone, but, like, I don't like violence. But I thought that they handled it really well, and, oh, my God, wrapped up nicely, a good ending. Oh, it just it was such a – it was fun. I, I, I also will say I went in. I didn't know a single thing about it. I hadn't read a log line, no synopsis. I had – no idea so i was like the first scene was like oh my god what am i getting into is yeah so that's the last great thing i watched um promising young woman well i think that is uh this perfect time to wrap up thank you so much this is mary kerrigan she's the first assistant director and the unit production manager on our uh on this week's film nomadland thanks for coming on sweet thank you guys thanks so much for coming on Trent, was that a good interview or what? Gosh, damn, Parth, was that interview great. I liked it. Did you? Trent, I I dare say I loved it. Using the L word. Uh, lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's a Scott Pilgrim reference, guys. Awesome. So speaking of Scott Pilgrim, uh, are we going to have any more episodes? I'd say next week, naturally, there's going to be a Nomadland discussion. That seems rather self-explanatory. Next week, you can check out our discussion on Nomadland. We both recently saw the movie. I think both yesterday saw the movie, right? Yeah, we watched it simultaneously. And by, by the time of this move, by the time of this episode's release, it will have been two days ago. But thanks we... for the update. Uh, so, Parth, I hate to catch you by surprise, but do you think we'll have a guest on for Nomadland? You'll just have to find out. Next, Next week. week on, on our craft show, surf- oh. Craft Services, the podcast. The movie, the podcast, the musical. On TV now. Check us In out on local YouTube. video store. Like and subscribe below. On Facebook.